Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. Hey there, and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a great conversation with Nir Ayal, moderated by tech author and TechCrunch writer Andrew Keane. This content was brought to us in partnership with Futurecast, which is a thought leadership series produced in collaboration between the AT&T Foundry and Ericsson. Nir Ayal writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed Nir the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir has founded two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, as well as the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir is also an advisor to several Bay Area startups, venture capitalists, and incubators. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Nir is a contributing writer for TechCrunch, Inc., and Psychology Today. Nir attended the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Emory University. In the following conversation with Andrew, plus some audience participation, Nir dives deep into the psychology, marketing, and creation of the technology that accessorizes our daily lives. Let's listen in to Nir Ayal and Andrew Keane speaking at a Futurecast series event hosted in Palo Alto. Thanks, Ruth. Um, so I made the uh, fatal error. As some of you know, I'm always, I mean, one of, the, one of my few expertises is knowing how to insult people. Um, when um, when I, uh, Nia and I did an interview uh, for, for, on video for our website, and the first thing I said to him about Hooked is, uh, so, so you wrote a, a book about addictive technology, and Nia said, no, not addictive technology, habitual technology. I'm against addictive technology. I'm interested in, in habit. Uh, so Nia, what is the difference between habit and addiction? and fit that into why you wrote this excellent book. Sure, thank you. So addiction has a very specific definition. It's a compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance, and it's always bad, right? Addictions hurt the user. Addictions are things that people want to stop doing, and yet they can't stop doing. So the book is not called How to Build Addictive Products. The book is called How to Build Habit-Forming Products, because habits have a very different profile, it's a completely different definition. Habits are nothing more than these impulses to do a behavior with little or no, with little or no conscious thought. It's about half of what we do every day, day in and day out, is done purely out of habit. And we have good habits as well as bad habits. And so the book is all about how do we build technologies to help people live better by using uh, habit-forming technology. One of the things that intrigued me about the book and your general thinking is how central you place habit in the business of designing product. For you, habit is not a side issue, it's not peripheral. It seems to be almost the thing in itself in terms of developing successful products. Is that fair? Well, I think it's become increasingly important because as the interface has shrunk, right, so as we went from desktop to laptop, 
to mobile and now wearable, as the real estate gets smaller, there's just less room to trigger people with messages and external, what I call external triggers to prompt them to action. So we have to rely more upon these internal triggers to form habits. So that's why 90% you know, of the apps you use are the ones that are on your home screen. Those are the ones you see most frequently. And so they be, habits become increasingly important as the interface shrink. What is it about contemporary technology, network, digital technology, that makes it so prone, vulnerable, if you like, to habitual behavior? Right. So I think there's this, um, uh, there's this trinity of three macro trends occurring right now that is making the world a more habit-forming, if not all-out addictive place, which is the confluence of greater personal data transmitted at faster speeds with more ubiquity, right? So our technologies are with us at all times. And so there's this, this when these three things converge, uh, more data transmitted at faster speeds and more ubiquity of technology means that the world is becoming a more potentially habit-forming place because users can be sent through what I call this hook. That's kind of the, the central outline of the book is this four-step process I call the hook model. And lead us through, or sure. hook us on the hook model. Sure, so the hook is this four-step process that users pass through that connects the user's problem to the product solution with enough frequency to form a habit. So it's successive cycles through these hooks that our tastes are shaped, that our preferences are formed, and that these habits take hold. Uh, the hook has these four basic parts, these four phases of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And it's through these successive cycles that these habits are established. Is every product, every piece of hardware and software now, can it be interpreted in, in terms of its success, in habitual terms? Well, let me just be clear up front. Not every product needs to form a habit, right? There are lots of products out there that can bring users back to the place of business with, with non-habit forming means, right? You can use uh, advertising, right? You can use search engine optimization. You can have a physical storefront on the corner in order to bring people back. However, if your business model, if the way that you generate and deliver value to your customers requires a habit, requires unprompted engagement, requires people coming back on their own, then you need a hook. And you have to ha create a habit in that product. So not every business model needs a habit, but every business model that needs a habit needs a hook. In the book, you have a, a, a short section, I think, is it on, on Instagram and its role in, a, a, I think it was a student at Stanford or uh, one of, the, one of the, the top schools. Talk about the way in which highly successful viral products like Instagram um, are habitual. Explain why. Why do we go back and back and back to these things? Right. Well, fundamentally, what these products are doing, the holy grail, is to create an association with an internal trigger. So let me just explain the difference between external triggers and internal triggers. Uh, both are cues to action. They tell us what to do next. Now, the external triggers, we all know, we've seen these in our day-to-day -day lives. These are things that tell us what to do by giving us some piece of information. Click here, buy now, uh, a friend telling you about a, a great new app through word of mouth. These are all examples of external triggers. The information is in the trigger itself. Internal triggers are things that tell the user what to do next, but where the information for what to do is not in the trigger, but instead informed through a memory, an association in the user's mind. 
So what we do when we're in a particular place, a situation, a routine, uh, when we're around particular people, and most frequently when we experience certain emotions dictates what we do next with little or no conscious thought. And the most frequent internal triggers are these emotions, but not just any emotions. It turns out they're negative emotions. So what we do when we're feeling bored or lonely or indecisive or lost or fatigued, what we do when we experience these negative emotions, these pain points, prompts us with very little conscious thought to use these products and services, to seek relief from this tiny psychological itch that we're barely cognizant of. So to answer your question, what these products are doing is attaching to these internal triggers, to frequently these negative emotional states, so that every time we feel bored, we feel FOMO, we feel uh, seeking connection, we open up Instagram without thinking. It sounds like an addiction to me. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it can be. Frankly, it can be an addiction. The, the difference is to the degree, right? Nobody's using Facebook and Instagram intravenously, right? That's not how these products not work. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe if they figure out how to do that, right? Um, so for most people, these products are not addictions. If you say, look, you know, uh, can you, can you, could you moderate behave, the behavior? Uh, could, you know, how, is it something that you could stop using for a few days? Most people say, yeah, it's, I, could, I could probably do that. Now, not everybody. There is a segment of the population that does get all out addicted, but it turns out that that proportion of the population is about one to 5%, depending on industry. And the good news is that we can do something about those folks. That addiction, unfortunately, is, is, is an unfortunate byproduct of many of these technologies. Now again, for the vast majority of people, these products are great. You know, I'm no Luddite, I love these technologies. I don't wanna go back to a world before Facebook and Instagram and Google and all these companies existed. I think these, uh, by and large, these products have done a lot of good for us. But the good news is that for the first time, the manufacturers of addictive products, potentially addictive products, can do something about those people. Because let's think about it, you know, addiction is nothing new, right? People have been addicted to all sorts of things throughout time. I mean, if you've ever seen, have you ever seen that A&E show? I think it's on A&E where it's uh, intervention. You know, people get addicted to sniffing glue. They get addicted to pulling their hairs. They get addicted to all sorts of things. And, and that's nothing new. That's been around for a very long time. But the, for the first time, you know, it used to be that if you were an alcohol distiller, you could throw up your hands and say, well, we don't know who's getting addicted. We don't know who the alcoholics are. It's not our fault. We just make this stuff. We have no idea who, who abuses it. But for the first time, these companies know. And the upside of the data that they're collecting about us is that if they wanted to, they could do something about it. So the, 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 that, that's kind of, I've written before about uh, how I think companies should establish, if they're making potentially addictive products, that they, they should establish what I call a use and abuse policy. They should have some kind of number that's too much, right? Some kind of number that says, you know what, if you're on Facebook 40 hours a week, that's too much. Because they know how much we're using this product, and if they wanted to, they could intercede and say, look, we, you know, you're showing a behavioral profile, a pattern of someone who's potentially using this product to an unhealthy degree, and some companies are already doing this. You learned the hard way, though, didn't you? you your, your book was triggered by your failure to create habitual. Products. Well, we did a lot of experiments. At my last company, I was the CEO of a company in the advertising and gaming space. And so we saw a lot of experiments, not only our product iterations, but our clients. We, we worked with the gaming companies and with the advertisers. So I saw hundreds of experiments, hundreds of trials, hundreds of, of, of failures. And the burning question in my mind was why? 
You know, the, the, the struggle that most entrepreneurs here in Silicon Valley, most startup founders around the world struggle with is not, oh my gosh, people are overusing my product. That's not their worries. Their problem is nobody gives a, you know what, about my product. Nobody cares enough to actually interact with it. And so that's who this book was written for, was to try and take out some of these techniques from gaming, from advertising, uh, to industries that are dependent on you know, using these techniques to change human behavior, and try and bring this to a larger audience so that products that are trying to build healthy habits, healthy behaviors in users' lives can use these very same techniques for good. So what are your tips? We've got lots of designers here, entrepreneurs. What can you tell people about these healthy, habitual, uh, products. What, what, what do you need to do to create uh, health, healthy, healthy habits? Right. So uh, first it's about identifying the right behavior. And that's where I think a lot of times with, uh, you know, they, they, we, we all know what we say about uh, what the road to hell is paved with, right? It's good intentions. And so the, the first step is to figure out what the right behavior is that you want to change. So what's the habit that you want to create? Once we know that behavior, we can create a very quick outline using the hook model of what's the internal trigger that we're going to create an association with. What's the external trigger that brings the user to the product with some piece of information. What's the action? The next step of the hook is the action phase. And the action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. And the simpler we can make that, that behavior, that action, the more likely the user is to do that behavior. Then comes the reward phase. The reward phase is where the user's itch is scratched, right? Where that, that whatever it was that brought them to that product, where they get relief from that psychological itch. And it typically tends to be a variable reward. Uh, and th this comes from the work of B.F. Skinner. You remember Skinner from our Psych 101 classes, the, the father of operant conditioning. Uh, Skinner told us that, uh, you know, he found that in his studies of pigeons, when he would take a pigeon, put it in his Skinner box, and he would allow the pigeon to peck at a disc and provide the pigeon with a reward on a, on a predictable schedule, basically the pigeon would peck at the disc every time they were hungry. But then Skinner did something different, right? Skinner introduced this variable reward. So sometimes the pigeons would peck at the disc, but nothing would happen, right? No food pellet would come out. The next time they would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner found was that the pigeon would peck at the disc, would do the behavior more frequently when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. So in all sorts of products that we find most habit-forming, most engaging, uh, the things that capture our attention and won't let go, you find these variable rewards. Which then brings us to the last step of the hook, the investment phase. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product. It's where they put a bit of effort into the product in anticipation of a future benefit. And these investments, the purpose of these investments is to increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook. And they do this in two ways. They store value, they get better with use, and they load the next trigger. So for example, uh, when I like a photo on, on Instagram, or I comment on, some, on a photo, or I upload my own photo on Instagram, you mentioned Instagram earlier, all of those things don't necessarily provide me immediate gratification, right? I don't get, nothing really happens when I do those actions. What I'm doing is loading the next trigger. I'm giving the company a reason to reach out to me based on my own behaviors. Because I've invested in the product, now I have these external triggers which come back at me and provide me an opportunity to pass through the hook once again. Ruth at the beginning talked about breaking bad habits, right. companies that have fallen into 
bad habits? How do you break bad habits? Right. So this is something I'm, I'm very concerned about because there's, there's, let me tell you the two reasons I wrote this book. The number one reason I wrote this book was to help product makers, right? To help entrepreneurs, designers, people who are working on products that they believe can improve people's lives, but for some reason people aren't engaging with what they've built. And that's a terrible feeling. I felt that. I know how frustrating it is. So that's the number one reason I, I wrote the book. The second reason I wrote the book is that I think the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place. And so it's up to us as designers, as entrepreneurs, as developers, it's up to us to figure out how to use this for good and how to make sure that we don't allow these products to manipulate us in unintended ways. So I'll let you in on the, on the little secret of this book. The book is a bit of a Trojan horse. That you buy the book thinking, hey, I, need to, I want to start the next Facebook. How do I do it? And that's terrific, right? It'll give you tips on how to do that. But you can't really read this book without thinking, number one, I have a tremendous responsibility here to use this for good. And number two, this is being done on me. And that all of us as consumers need to understand how these products work, how this model is designed into these products so that we can prevent unwanted manipulation. I think in the, the early dawn of uh, the age of artificial intelligence, your, your warnings take on special relevance. Um, in the book and, and, and in your work, you stress that most of us, when we use this technology, aren't really aware of its habitual nature. Right. And we're certainly not aware of its addictive nature. What happens when we learn about this? How does the user respond? when they're told, because they, they go on Instagram 100 times a day, that they're habitually right. um, connected with this thing or perhaps even addicted. What is the response of people right. to your work and to your research? Right. So for, for most people, these behaviors uh, are perhaps difficult to moderate, but not impossible. That again, you know, we're not using these products intravenously. Uh, there are things that we can do less of if we so choose, just like all sorts of distractions, right? Distractions are nothing new, right? Uh, Socrates and Aristotle debated about the nature of acrasia, this tendency that, that we mortals have to do things that are against our better interests, right? And if it's not uh, the technologies that we're using on our phone, before that it was television, and before that it was comic books, and every generation bemoans what the next generation thinks is fun as something foreign and uh, unworthy of, of our time. And today it's, it's many of these uh, apps that we use on our devices. And so it's not that these things are, are bad, right? I, I, I love these technologies. I think my concern is when these things bleed into areas of our life that we don't want them to be in, right? So when we're using our, our technologies as opposed uh, to being with people we love, when we know we want to be fully present and yet we aren't. Uh, one thing that kills me is when I, I go in to do some of my consulting work and we sit down in, at a, a big conference room table and it's you know, 10, 15 people have come and uh, we're taking all their time and somebody in the room thinks it's a great time to take out their phone and start using their email right now. Right? Drives me nuts because if we're going to say, look, let's meet in the physical world as opposed to meeting online or sending emails, let's be fully present. So I think what's happened is that technology has evolved so much faster than our social norms have. As Paul Graham says, we haven't had the time to develop these social antibodies. 
And so part of the process is to, you know, is to critique a little bit, to understand what's going on. And I, I appreciate some of your work that you've done to, to kind of make us all more aware of the downside of some of these technologies so that we can put it in its place. I, I want to open this up. We're yeah. going to call on some people. Um, we got two, you're talking about a new generation of technology. We've got two people here who are both distinguished practitioners of creativity uh, outside say network technology. Uh, Tom Zimbalist and Jason Brinkerhoff. Tom is a very distinguished, famous photographer. Jason is one of the best known, most fashionable uh, artists, uh, in the, certainly in the Bay Area at the moment. He also has a background in technology. Tom, you, you've been on, your, your work has been on the cover of Time Magazine many times, so many times you can't even count. Um, is this a perennial problem we're talking about, or is this something new about uh, what Nir is talking about when it comes to digital technology? Oh, gosh. You're asking a photographer, you know. <laughs> uh, cameras were invented for inarticulate people like me. Um, Say that again, sorry? I said cameras were invented for inarticulate people like me. <laughs> um, I, I, I guess the, the closest thing I can come to relating with is, is how people use Instagram a lot. Um, I find that the use of that application, which is terrific, is not really using photography as it has been used in the past. It's using it as a means of um, uh, almost incidental communication. It's, it's not creating an image to uh, represent some particular creative inspiration that you've had or a particular idea. It's just to illustrate uh, something more easily than I could say it. Uh, here's my dinner. <laughs> I, that's my experience of it. But how, how more or less a, habitual is people looking at your more sort of classic photography with the way in which users now look or don't look at Instagram photographs, do you think? Well, I've always made a distinction about the difference between a photograph and an image, which is a facsimile of a photograph. A photograph is a print that you can behold and admire. It's a physical thing. And there's a very different experience in looking at a photograph for example, that's hanging on a wall in a museum or even in an album, as opposed to looking at something on a computer screen or your iPhone or, or what have you. Um, it's not to say that one is better than the other, but they're different. Uh, I used to tell students when I would teach that if you want to see the Mona Lisa, you go to the Louvre. You can't experience the Mona Lisa looking at it in a book or in a magazine. So there's a difference between, you know, you're asking a photographer what's, what's this all about. The difference between those technologies for me is that there are two different things, that's all. Um, I don't equate uh, the, uh, the, the prolific use of, of the technology that is called Instagram as photography in the sense of I'm consciously creating something that I want to share with people in a different context. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a different medium. Jason, I saw you nodding when Tom mentioned the Mona Lisa. Um, you, you began your career uh, in technology. Uh, and now, as I said, you, you've become a very well-known and popular, fashionable uh, artist. What do you make of this, this seemingly habitual nature of, of, of modern technology? I have a lot of thoughts. Um, about three years ago, Instagram really became a thing in kind of contemporary art society, um, meaning there's just a lot of adoption by artists who were beginning to publish, uh, you know, kind of a curated view of their life or what was going on in their studio. Everybody takes a different approach. 
Um, now it's there's there's kind of a joke in my field that you can be good at Instagram, but that doesn't mean you're good as an artist. And so there's there's a divide, um, and it gets to some of these ideas about the difference between the screen and what happens in real life. Um, the uh, this this conversation made me think of I think it was a decade ago McDonald's started getting sued for selling addictive products, and I wonder if technology companies will ever get sued. Um, uh, by, That's a great idea. Because, because if what you're proposing is true, that you can truly engineer use, then the implication of that is that companies will be held responsible for the type of use that they create. And could there be a class action lawsuit against Instagram for a whole category of people that became addicted to it? And Instagram knowingly, right, continued to build and pump up their platform, right, to a detrimental effect. So I mean, I think, it's, it's, I think about three thousand lawyers right now are wringing their hands. Yeah, it's, it's an entirely new field, right? Um, but I, I think of uh, you know, Instagram is interesting because um, for a professional, um, I can go onto Instagram and I can kind of, to the best of my ability, I can edit out the screen when I look at my colleagues, my competitors. But but the the, the worry I have is that is that as the art market continues to grow the screen is capturing an entire new audience that doesn't experience art as it was made in the flesh, exhibited in the flesh, and, 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 and so now you've got an entire new generation that, um, that just wants art to look good on a phone. I feel this on a daily basis just on the economic side of what I do. If it doesn't look good on a smartphone, it's probably not gonna sell. And, and that has nothing to do with the experience somebody might have standing in front of it or living in front of it. And so, yeah, I mean, there's massive change when it comes to, to kind of how art is represented through these technologies. I, I, want, to give the, uh, I want to give the microphone to Eva. Oh, you knew I was going to call it on you, Eva. You, you had a great career. You were fairly early at Google. Now you have your own venture fund. Does this resonate, this, this idea of technology as habitual? Do you think of... Google, for example, as uh, a product that falls under this category? Um, yeah, I guess, um, I mean, I'm new to, I'm just listening to the four sort of prongs of the hook model. Um, I think a lot of technologies fall into it, some don't. I think the varied incentive part is, doesn't apply to all technology. Like Uber doesn't have varied incentives. I mean, they may have price, like surge pricing, but oh, sorry, that. your experience is pretty expected every single time. Um, so, I mean, this is real, this is happening. Um, I don't know whether we can stop it if we wanted to. Um, I think there's more benefits than negatives for these technologies. Yes, like, you know, you're interacting different with people, you're engaging less, you know, maybe face-to-face, -face, but overall, I think the benefits for most of these technologies, the social benefits are outweigh the cost. Talk more, what are the social benefits? Um, well, I think we can connect with information, people, products, all over the world like we've never been able to do before. Um, we have more access to things to help us make deci better decisions. I mean, there's lots more transparency in every sector of society. Um, I think all those are pros, for me at least. So I, you know, I'm less worried than others. And I think the generation of millennials are even less worried than that. So when you move into areas of privacy and all this stuff, like they're like, I think that generation is not concerned at all. Um, so anyways. 
But can I, can yeah. I actually uh, just comment on the point of Uber and Google and variable rewards? So um, variable rewards can either be inserted into a product intentionally. If the internal trigger, for example, is, is boredom. Explain what they are for everyone. Sure. So variable rewards, you know, scratching the user's itch, giving them what they came for, and yet having this element of variability associated, this bit of mystery around what the user might find the next time they engage with a product. So if the internal trigger, there has to be a connection between the internal trigger and the variable reward. So the internal trigger is boredom. Well, then we want to insert variable rewards, right? What makes uh, watching a Netflix show exciting is the uncertainty, right? What's going to happen in the end? And of course, when that's done, it's not so interesting anymore. We don't go watch the same episode again and again and again. We want to see the next true. episode. That was as true of television production Absolutely. as taking photographs, as making good art, of writing good Very, books. It's, it's, it's been us, in us for 200,000 years since the species first evolved, right? We love variability. It, it causes us to focus. It causes us to engage. But if the internal trigger is not boredom, what many products do is not necessarily insert the variable rewards. Google doesn't want to insert variability in your search results. Instead, what it does is give you agency and control over something that is inherently variable. A search query has a question mark, right? You're looking for something specific, and the question mark in your mind is, where do I find it? It's inherently uncertain. So what Google does is to provide us agency and control a lot better than the way we used to have it when we had all these hierarchies. If you remember what you know, search used to look like before Google, it was very effortful. It was something that took a lot of time to get to that reward. Well, Google gave the user greater agency and control over something that's inherently variable. You mentioned Uber, another great example of a product that took something that's inherently variable and inserted agency and control. The thing that was always variable that was so frustrating about getting a cab back before Uber was, if you remember this, every time you call the cab company, say, OK, well, how, how long is it going to be until I can you know, catch my cab? How long is that going to take? No matter how far it was, the answer always was 15 minutes. Go on the corner, 15 minutes, we'll be there. Maybe five minutes, maybe an hour would pass, doesn't matter, 15 minutes, be there. Well, Uber takes something that's inherently variable, inherently uncertain, and gives the user greater agency and control by giving you that little beautiful cab icon that tells you how far away the taxi cab is. Right? So now you have agency and control over something that's variable. Let me ask you, uh, uh, as, as an investor, perhaps the, the ethical question about addictive technology. Mark Andreessen famously refused to invest in Secret and these other an anonymous apps because he thought that they led to bullying. If some of this technology is indeed, as some people are saying, addictive or lends itself to perpetual potential addiction, do you think as an investor you have a moral responsibility not to invest? That's a tough question because um, I think there's a lot of, there's sort of a really gray line there. Um, I guess every technology can be viewed on both sides. I mean, I am an investor in Whisper, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, you are. I am, yes. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I mean, as an investor, certainly, like I want Did technologies a, that do more good moral, than bad. A moral dilemma over Whisper, or you just thought it was a, a good company? I think it's a good company. I mean, yeah, they they haven't done everything perfectly, um, but it's really big in China now. You know, oddly, I mean, it's until the Chinese Does that government. Make it is good because it's well, big in China. Well, it's more it's more the fact that um, it allows people to express themselves and say things that they normally can't oh, say. Oh, I see. Oh, so yeah, yeah. I think in China, it's just a special. Anyways, it's especially yeah, anonymity in China is slightly different from anonymity in America. Correct. But but coming back to this issue of ethics and investment, and if if near if if some of the warnings near is giving about the potential for 
determining, quantifying the, uh, the habitual nature of this technology? Should we be concerned, or is this something that we shouldn't really be worried about? And as an investor, is it something that you would look at? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's actually a major metric for most of the apps, whether they're enterprise app or consumer apps is what we call engagement, or if you want to level it up, addiction, right? Like, I mean, this is what Twitter is struggling with right now. Like, they're failing, they're enough. not addictive enough. I mean, you read the whole thing about Chris, from Chris Saka recently, where yeah, he wrote like that a- that was today. Chris Saka, who uh, was one of the original uh, investors in Twitter and major shareholder has argued that, you know, Twitter has to do these things to catch on. But is it not so much, I mean, isn't this all about interface, Eva, that Chris Saka's critique of Twitter is about interface and habit is all about interface? And that's, you know, someone like Steve Jobs was such a genius because of his mastery of interface. Absolutely. And it's, a, I mean, we have some really great product managers and designers in the, in the audience. But, um, yeah, absolutely. And what's more fascinating is it's very different across cultures, right? Like there was a big New York Times article this weekend about what Silicon Valley can learn from Korea. Because the Koreans interact with apps in a much different way, right? So Talk we need that. to see. It was, a, it was a fascinating piece. Yeah, it was a great piece. I mean, I skimmed it, but really the thesis was that, um, in Korea, there's, um, the apps are just more cluttered, uh, people are more willing to pay for apps, and million, well, more willing to pay for like, in-app games. And in the US, like, a lot of apps, like 99%, don't make any money because all of us expect stuff to be free. Um, so that's, like, just, you know, that's one of the several points of the article, but it'll be neat to see how this model applies as you travel around the world. Like, how do you apply to like, builders in Korea? And Koreans who want to move the apps to the US and sell into the US market, like, do they radically have to change the interface? Is there something cultural about habitual behavior? Are Americans and Koreans, do they have different c cultural affections towards their technology? Right, so I, you know, what, the, the model itself stays the same. The four steps, whether it's enterprise or consumer web, whether it's uh, one country or another, whether it's male or female, I mean, the, the fundamental traits are the same. What, what changes is what one individual finds rewarding versus what another individual finds rewarding. So you might be habituated to watching your favorite sports team, and if, it's, if they're playing, you're watching. There's nothing that's gonna get in between you and, and your favorite team. That might be a, an impulse that's difficult for you to resist, but that might be utterly boring uh, to John over here. Right? So what's interesting to you, what's rewarding to you, might not be rewarding and to, to John. And so that variable reward phase breaks for one user where it might work for another user. And so that's, that's where you know, doing ethnographic research, understanding what your user's itch is, and understanding how to scratch that itch becomes so important. Either as an investor, what advice, there are a number of entrepreneurs here, and I'd like to hear from some of our companies that are showing here, what advice would you give on this front about developing products, how critical is it from your point of view as an investor? I think it's absolutely critical um, to build a user experience that's sticky. Um, are there things that you shouldn't do because it makes it too sticky or just you know, sort of rides a line of ethics? But in general, like look at Slack, right? Like, so people think about consumer, but if you look at on the enterprise side, there have been so many attempts at enterprise collaboration over the last 25 years. But Slack made it because Slack is really sticky. Sticky, is that the same as habitual? I, that's one term people use, sticky, right? It used to be sites, where, particularly in e-commerce, I think because the web kind of came out of this e-commerce pedigree where everything had to be slicky, right? Everything had to get the user from search to uh, cart to checkout, everything had to be slicky, and now the, the, new, uh, the, the new goal is to make sites sticky. Roger, 
you're head of research at O'Reilly, which is one of the, the, the top uh, tech publishing companies in, the, in Silicon Valley. Does this confirm your research? Uh, is is Nir's work a confirmation of, of what O'Reilly is discovering about the importance of stickiness or habitual um, uh, nature of technology? A quick break from Nier for some recent startup headlines. Auto rickshaw ride-hailing startup Jugnu has raised $10 million in a Series B round from Snow Leopard Capital and others. The India-based service claims 2.6 million registered users and has raised $16 million to date. Florida has won a contract for a facility in the state to produce OneWeb satellites, according to Reuters. OneWeb will reportedly produce 900 small satellites aimed at providing global internet coverage. The full rollout is expected to be launched around 2019. IBM has signed cloud video deals with AOL, CBC, Comic-Con, and others. IBM recently acquired Ustream and launched its cloud video unit three months ago. They also launched a new product for distributing high-quality streams over standard broadband and an enterprise CDN for live video. Let's get back to the conversation with Nir Eyal. You know, it's not so much that it confirms our research, but it confirms something that we've observ observed in the world. And because we've looked at how tech has changed, when things started off, like the engineers were kind of in charge. And in a way, what caught us by surprise was things like Pinterest and Airbnb. And you write about Pinterest. A lot. Right. And that these things, like, what we've done now is, like, we looked at those and said, you know, it wasn't that they had great programmers. Right. Or that they had great designers, great things about stickiness. And, you know, it's, it's something that, whether it's true or not, I don't know, the kind of like mirror neuron kind of things where because you experience something, you, like you talk about seeing the uh, pictures on a screen. Well, I don't know if you know much about the mirror, mirror neuron thing, but you experience the same thing when you watch something as when you do it. So if you're playing tennis, certain neurons go off. If you watch people playing tennis, the same neurons go off. And a lot of this kind of stuff might be going on, and, and we've been thinking about that. There's someone at O'Reilly named um, Kathy Sierra who writes books for us and, and has talked about this kind of subject. So what, what we see is this notion of the interface being super important graphically. You know, there's kind of like a new look now that seems to be very popular. If you think about it, it's very image first. And these are the kind of things that I think, I mean, if I were an investor, I'd be looking for people who, not so much copying, but kind of internalize that this is a way to get this, the kind of stickiness that's appropriate. You know, like the whole ethics thing, that's a pretty tough, you know, that's tough and it's so contextualized. But I just think in terms of designing something, if I saw a clunky design, I, wouldn't, I just would think you're going to miss something. If I see something where, gosh, like the way Airbnb used images to help solve like a pretty weird problem, which is staying at someone's house. Uh, if someone can do the analogy or metaphor of that, that's great. And I think that that would be something worth Our last huge car, some of you were here, was a really good conversation about women in tech um, and the absence, obviously, of female engineers and the problem in Silicon Valley of, of not really sort of leveraging female expertise and learning and involvement in companies. And Pinterest is an interesting example of that, after all, because I don't know what percentage of Pinterest users are female, what, 80, 90 percent? And of course, as you say, Roger, it wasn't a, an engineering-centric pro product. It was a, a cultural product. Yeah, no, like Polyvore is another one, which was more culturally a thing. I think the thing with Pinterest that's really interesting, just as a quick story, I think Pinterest, I mean, their business model stuff that they execute, because people uh, uh, give out their intentions really well can be a really winning thing. So I signed up for it and I happen to, I happen to skateboard. 
So I put skateboard as my topic, and it ends up, it's so like kind of female focused. It was mostly moms showing pictures of their kids' skateboards mounted on the walls. Um, but I, I think that the, they, I mean, they are onto something. Who, the, Pinterest? Pinterest. And I think that it's easy for a lot of the engineering-centric Silicon Valley area to kind of dismiss some of that. But I think we could all like learn. So we something. should be worried uh, in Silicon Valley generally about still an engineering-centric drive when it comes to product development. Well, I mean, someone had brought up Apple, and you know, is app was Apple and is Apple engineering-centric or not? It seems like the design is what kind of wins things over. I think it's a, it's just a missed opportunity, right? I mean, Pinterest is a great example of this. I mean, they've got a phenomenal. Hook built into into Pinterest. Part of a, a did big, they know or they sort of no. So so the, the, what I do in this book is is kind of uh, uses what uh, Dan Ariely uh, calls this um, uh, advanced hindsight. Right. I looked at companies that had already done this and tried to find the patterns, tried to see what emerges after we look at company after company that builds these products that have super high engagement rates and try and figure out what are these common patterns. Now that the book's been out, you know, the book just came out in November, what we're starting to see now is the first batch of companies that are being built with the hook in mind, which is, which is fantastic. But, you know, these companies that I get an occasional email from a company, and sometimes I invest in these companies as well. That's kind of my investment thesis, is to look for these habit-forming products that, that do good. Sharon, you're at Stanford, right? Yeah. And you, you might say a little bit about what you're doing there and how this connects with your work. And, 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 and how would you agree or disagree with what Nair is basically saying? Many questions. Um, what do you do at Stanford? So right now, uh, I'm working at Stanford on a project um, that's an executive education pro project that um, we are looking at strategic big picture, big picture issues and developing content that's delivered on-site, online, and then there's an on-site component. Um, and the courses are small, and we've had our, our most exciting course um, that's gotten the most interest and really great feedback is called the Science of Decision Making. And we bring together, it's an interdisciplinary um, course, and we bring together experts from Stanford that are from neuroscience and behavioral economics and the design school and sort of talk about decision making and what what goes on and you know we're looking at brains and all these kind of um, levels and perspectives and I don't I don't know I, I have lots of thoughts and I'm not I, I don't feel like I can articulate anything like off well, do you know. basically agree with this reading of the relationship we have with technology. By the way, the book came out I, of a class I, I taught at Stanford, at the Using Neuroscience to Influence Human Behavior class that I taught with Baba Shiv. Oh. So a lot of Baba Shiv's research is actually... And how many, <laughs> someone awesome. wanted to ask a question about Ariely. How central would you see your work in the, in the, in the behavioral uh, economics discourse? Right. Is, this, is this a behavioral economics book? Right, so, no, it's, it's not, um, but I do put uh, heuristics inside What's a particular... What's heuristics? Heuristics are these shortcuts that our brains take to make decisions. So it's, uh, there's, if, you look on, if you look up heuristics in uh, Wikipedia, you'll see about you know, 150 different cognitive quirks that we have that cause us to make decisions in ways that we couldn't necessarily express. And that's why understanding consumer psychology is so important. Because 
because it turns out that we can ask customers what they want. And we should do that, right? We should interview our customers. We should ask them what they're looking for. And that's fine. But there's this whole other layer of, of things that influence human behavior that people couldn't tell you will influence their behavior. Many of them are these heuristics, things like the scarcity effect, the fact that people will pay more for the same exact thing just because one is scarce and one is abundant, right? That's a quirk. Right? There's not logical. People wouldn't tell you that's the case, and yet studies have demonstrated it does change their behavior. So I put heuristics and a lot of behavioral economics inside the action phase of the hook. Felicia, did you? Yeah, I feel like the elephant This is the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room seems to be the addictive quality of uh, porn. And I actually... Not for you. No, no, no. I actually have represented a book on the porn trap. And this has become suddenly an area that people are recognizing, that pornography online has become a major impact on relationships today. And that it's really caused problems that had not been seen um, people thought it was just, you know, another way of having but pornography, that, but it, it's not. It's actually it, changing relationships. Um, and I think within the psychological community, it's really perceived of as, you know, not only addictive, but incredibly destructive. Right, right. so that's addiction rather than habit, porn, right. online porn, isn't it? Right, I, I, if it, if the, the qualifications is it's a behavior that you want to stop, but can't. That's, that's an addiction. But I think that's clearly an indication of where the technology has gotten out of control. And I, I think for some people that's absolutely the case, right? And the other area that you know, clients of mine have been talking about how is... And, and you're, a, you're a literary uh, Right, agent, and these so are books you... that I've been involved with that have been dealing with some of these issues. But one of the other issues is that some of the issues around Facebook where younger teenagers are concerned is that the perception of reality mm -hmm. is so skewed that they're viewing other people's reality as somehow better than theirs when in fact it's not reality, it's right. a Facebook reality. Right. And that seems to be another, another impact of how technology in terms of so, habitual use yeah. has, has had a destructive let, let, let influence. Me, let me rephrase, or maybe not rephrase, or redirect that question about, you know, one of the hot areas now in Silicon Valley is virtual reality. Uh, Google just in their, in their conference had a, a cheap glass and more and more investment in that area. How does that play into to habit and addiction as we become more and more uh, associated with other versions of reality? Well, you know, this is a big unknown. Uh, I think what we do know is that it's, it's going to have a massive impact. It's going to make the reward more rewarding. Uh, it's, I think it's going... What do you mean, make the reward more So that third phase of the hook, the reward phase. Um, so there's, there's only three ways to capture a customer habit from, a, from your competitor. And so what we're seeing is that you know, every new technology that comes out that's catering to the same exact internal triggers, right? Boredom has been a around for a very long time, right? Loneliness has been around for a very long time. It's just every new tool, every new technology caters to the same exact existing internal triggers. And so there's only three ways to capture somebody else's habit. And just like Facebook captured the habit that used to be you know, going home and watching TV for, for a few hours, now people are instead on, on Facebook, every new technology that captures somebody else's habit has to do one of three things. The first is to, make, is to pass through the hook with greater velocity. 
So if you can go trigger action reward investment faster than the competitor, that's one way to win a habit. The second way to win a habit is to uh, increase the frequency. So the first is velocity, the second is frequency. So if you can get people to pass through the four steps of the hook more often throughout their day, you stand a chance of winning. And this typically happens when there's an interface change. So when we go from desktop to laptop to mobile phones and now wearables, the fact that our technology is more accessible, we can use it more frequently, that means the habit deck gets reshuffled. So you know, Instagram was such a big competitive threat to Facebook that they had to buy them, and now Snapchat is a huge competitive threat that they offered but were rebuffed, because when the interface shifted, this new product, these new uh, competitors could, could get the, the habit so from the incumbent. So you look at this thing on your wrist, what's the, thing, what's the difference in terms of your work between that and a wristwatch? Let me just finish the third point, because I, I want this addresses uh, the point made earlier about the reward being more rewarding. So the last way to capture a competitor's habit is to make the reward more rewarding. And not just a little bit better, it has to be 10x better. And this is from a Harvard Business Review study that, that's been kind of quoted and floated around uh, for several years now, where it can't just be a little bit better. The reward has to be a lot better. It has to be way more fulfilling. And, and it looks to me, I mean, I've tried the Oculus Rift. It looks to me like that's, that's a 10x improvement. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. So it's for real. I think it's, I think it's for real. Not immediately. V1 always sucks, right? But V2, V3, I think we're going to start saying that this will be a, a big deal in the, in the coming years. Mary? So I would push back on your definition of addiction. For me, the definition of addiction is when somebody consciously or unconsciously, and I think most addicts are unconscious, uses something to feel better. Because of the five emotions, mad, sad, glad, fear, and shame, four of them feel bad. And I think whether you're using Pinterest or heroin or chocolate or porn or whatever it is to not have to feel bad in your life, you're, if you're using something, even for a second, whatever that reward is, you're still you're engaging in a layer of addiction. And so I think you know, my, the thing is, is that I engage in the activities that you're talking about in terms of building products for people to create habits, right? So I get that. But at the same time, I wonder if we're not all building the equivalent of the subprime mortgage system where eventually we just push the entire culture over the edge because everybody is such an addict that, you know, they're not conscious at all in their lives. And then what society have we built? What culture are we building? Yeah. You know, um, the ethic part, ethics part concerns me, but I, I want to make sure we don't get too bogged down in it because, um, again, it, it, addiction it is really about a very small portion of the population. When most people, and we're talking 95 to 9% of the population, sees that it, it deters from their life, sees that it, it has a price, and it does have a price, and there's all kinds of tactics that, that 95 to 9% of the population that says, you know what, I'm using email too much, I'm checking Facebook too much. There are techniques that I've written about on my blog extensively around how to put uh, these technologies in its place. Most people can do something about the, that behavior, right? They can, they can put it aside. For the addicts, the fact that we now know means we can reach out. And so there's a companies like Stack Overflow, for example. Stack Overflow has a policy in place that say, says if you use Stack Overflow, it's the world's largest technical question and answer site. 5,000 questions get answered every single day on this site. If you use the site more than 20 hours a week, you get a little notification that says, you know what, that's too much, and you cannot earn any more points. 
So they take the reward phase out of their hook so that you can't earn any more points. Why? Because Jeff Atwood, one of the co-founders of Stack Overflow, wanted Stack Overflow to be something that enhances your life but doesn't become your life. He wanted people to go out and, and, and build things as opposed to spending too much time on the platform, so he put in these breakers. And, and I think that's, that's what I'm calling on these companies uh, to do. But to put it in perspective, this might be the most first world problem we can ever think of, right? These free apps are so good, we want to use them all the time, right? Like that's, that's you know, let's put this in perspective. For and, this. Yeah, and someone <laughs> just pitched me a product that if you use Facebook too much, you would get fined. <laughs> so it's an app which sort of reverses yeah. the whole thing. Ravi, did you? Yes, first of all, it's an excellent conversation. You know, I, just, I was just reminded of you know, Mary Meeker's you know, internet trends, and it actually bothered me that most of the top five or six platforms that, that people are using today are all kind of you know, reactive. You're notified. So I feel that uh, you know, a generation ago, we took actions based on passion, you know, based on inspiration. Like he talked about the art, right? We are so today we are. I I I see a lot of children. They're taking actions because they're being notified. So I, I do agree that as investors and and you know and, and all the authors in the in the room, we should not celebrate those kind of companies and give them huge valuations because it has a very generational impact. When I see young children, you know, parents come and say, "Oh, my child never responds when I call." It's not the child's issue. It's the game that they're playing where they're using this, the psychological aspects to make the game addictive. So when you explain that to parents, they, they start getting mad at their children, and then they think, you know, why are these companies being, being celebrated like that? So I do, I do think that as an individuals, uh, entrepreneurs, we are responsible to create a generation that can take actions out of inspiration and passion not because we are, we are always notified by, for, it's, to it's do something. It's a great question, and Nir, maybe you can talk more broadly about parents and technology yeah. and the relationship between technology, habit, and children, and of course, the danger of addiction. It's, 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 a, it's a field, as I'm sure you know, where more and more parents are concerned. Right, so I, I think the way that we uh, put technology in its place is that we understand how these products work. That we, we fundamentally understand these hooks that are built in the product so that we can do something about it. I mean, uh, I write about, just as much as I write about creating healthy habits with these technologies, I write about how to break hooks in my own life. So there's all kinds of things that I do systematically to break the hooks I don't want. For example, uh, I use what I call attention retention tools. And there's this explosion of products today. And this is kind of what we see every time there's this new technology that comes out with bads, right? Every goods you know, invariably has undesirable consequences. And part of the consequences is that these products are so good, they're so engaging that we, we find it hard to put them down sometimes. And so new products have come to market in this attention retention field to help us put technology in its place. For example, uh, every day I use an app called Freedom which turns off my internet during certain times of the day when I need to concentrate. When I get my two hours of daily writing time, the internet shuts off automatically. The internet also shuts off at night uh, when I'm trying to get sleep. So I have a, an outlet timer that I plugged into my wall that is plugged into my internet router so that every night, 10 p.m., the internet in my house turns off. Every, every weeknight, the internet shuts off. That way, it breaks the hook. Every time I feel that itch of, well, what should I be doing right now? Or, or what's happening on uh, Facebook? Or should I be checking email? I can't. It's a little bit more difficult to, to go through that hook. So that hook breaks and it inserts some mindfulness as opposed to mindlessness 
to, to make sure that I can uh, ask myself, is it really worth doing that behavior right now? We have people in the front uh, all demoing their new products. Some of them are startup companies. Uh, we'll get to them. One question here before that. But you, you guys need to think about some, some questions. in front me. of the monitor here. My name's Joe, and I'm with a firm called DNA Partners. And uh, I've worked for a Korean conglomerate, and we did, we talked about the past, we did have issues with free gaming and addiction, and then addiction uh, counseling associated for students. And then we had habits associated with our social network called SciWorld, which over 50% of the population used them in Korea. Now, let's talk about, there's a common denominator that we haven't talked about, and we, you led to it on free. So if I, was, if I was a youngster and I had free candy, or if I had an unlimited amount of gasoline in my automobile, I think I would be doing, I think I may become habit forming or addicted, but if there was commerce involved, I may have a different type of psychology where if I was paying for Facebook or Twitter, there may be another psychology versus free and sell your metadata. So new business models associated with psychology. We also have a, a couple of young women. I don't know if you'd like to talk about the impact of, of all this on your generation because it, it's all very well for us to con as adults our own use, but do you think that there's a generational difference here in terms of the habitual nature of technology on people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, oh, my name is Rosanna, by the way. Um, I've, I've seen it with a lot of my friends just when we're hanging out. You know, you were, I think you're mentioning it. It's just like we made plans to hang out and just, you know, be amongst each other in like the physical space and people pull out their phones and they're texting and they're checking Instagram or Snapchat or all these different things. Um, it definitely had a huge impact. I see it more as distractions sometimes than like habitual behavior or addictiveness where there's a lot of things going on that we just kind of, we like to zone out and be like in this virtual world or you know play video games in this other virtual world, you know, it's, I don't know, I've seen, I think it's, pretty detrimental. I mean, it does help with like spreading um, certain like just social issues that are going on to kind of blast out. There's a lot of just like viral stories going around, but in the end, I, yeah, it's pretty addictive um, and yeah, there's I've two, seen it. <laughs> if I can add, there's two interesting things that I've observed watching uh, millennials use technology. One is that they've they're coming up with all kinds of tactics to do what grown-ups think is very difficult, which is put technology in its place. Like they're, when, they're, when they're in times of, of needing to get stuff done, it's right before uh, exam time at the end of the quarter, they will give a friend, they'll change their Facebook password and give their friends the password during those exams. So they can't get on Facebook during that exam week. Uh, that's, that's one interesting observation. They're coming up with all these techniques to make sure that they don't become controlled by their technologies. Another thing that I found very interesting is that uh, millennials are also telling me that uh, they don't really have that many other options to socialize. That, you know, we think about in past generations, when, when I was growing up, what we did after school was go hang out, right? We would go to the 7-Eleven, we would go over to somebody's house, we would just do nothing basically. But now, Children are, are, you know, millennials, not children anymore, millennials are never without their phones because their parents are terrified. You know, I wouldn't let my kid just go off to the, the convenience store without a cell phone so that I can contact them. We're so protective and sheltered with our children that really this is their outlet for, for socializing. So I think that, you so know. So real hooks. 
What's that? The hook becomes the parents. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And that and that you know there, there's been surveys on what what millennials would prefer to do, and overwhelmingly what they prefer to do is actually be in the physical world with folks, with with their friends. So we have some some companies uh, who are demoing this stuff. But what is your reading of all this? My name is John. Uh, First of all, take a step back. I think we're doing a lot of tech shaming at the moment. So I think there's a lot of really negative inputs into like the negativity around technology. So um, first and foremost, anecdotally, technology has gotten me to exactly where I am today. So technology has introduced me to the co-founders I work with. Technology introduced me to my girlfriend. Technology has done a lot of really positive things for me. Um, and I do think that a lot of it comes down to, I know you didn't want to dive in too deep to it, near, but um, the psychology aspect of things. So we compare um, the idea of McDonald's, you know, a lawsuit on people who are eating too many hamburgers and, you know, becoming obese to utilizing technology too much. So I think both of them come back to the same ideology around the psychosis of the individual. And so I think the availability of the technology is a good thing and the availability of Rosanna using Snapchat with her friends is a good thing, uh, but it comes down to the aspect of moderation. Um, in any way, shape, or form. And how does it impact on your product and your yeah. development? Yeah, so ironically enough, my product works better the more people use social media platforms. So our product is an enterprise solution that it hinges on these digital channels and enables you know, one-to-one -one communication from a company like AT&T to Near, who's got a question about his billing cycle. So our product it actually hinges on the more people communicate, the better um, from a digital experience standpoint. But I think that is obviously, you know, it's putting a hook in the eventual communication channel, uh, but to provide a better experience. So I think, I think um, again, like I said, I think we're doing a lot of like negative shaming towards technology and it's, and it's quote unquote addiction, but, but it comes down to the persona of the individual uh, and whether or not they're strong enough to kind of overcome that addiction and if they have the support channels and the people around them to maybe not, you know, succumb to sitting on Snapchat when you're with your friends at lunch or something like that. So I would almost challenge you, Nir, when you have say, you know, you say that you have to shut the internet off and you have to turn things off around you because otherwise you'd succumb to them. Um, I think that comes down to an interpersonal decision and it comes down to us as human beings being like, all right, crap, I have to figure out how I don't succumb to that versus creating these, you know, ulterior triggers, using these ulterior technologies to solve those problems. So, so I totally agree. I think you know the, 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 there's there's three players here, right? There's the maker, there's the corporation, and then there's the user themselves. And I think I you know I I detailed a, an ethical framework. There's a whole chapter in the book called the morality of manipulation. That's really for the maker, the individual who's building these products. Uh, but there's also a lens to look at about the ethical implications for the manufacturer. This, this is where I say you know I've written about how. Uh, there's, a, there's a moral framework here for the corporation as well and we can get into. And then for the user, this is where personal responsibility comes in, right? That, that addiction is nothing new, that distraction is nothing new. And what we haven't talked about is all the good that these habit-forming products can create. That, uh, you know, part of my investment thesis and part of why I wrote this book is to help people who are increasing the well-being of, of others to use these technologies for good. So I'll mention two companies that I've invested in that use uh, these tactics. Uh, uh, one is called Pantry Labs. So a big reason uh, why the obesity epidemic is, is uh, such a problem today is the availability uh, problem with healthy food. That it's, you know, I, I was today at a high school uh, that we're thinking about collaborating with in terms of, of designing better solutions. And the first thing I see when I walk into this high school 
Right in front is a vending machine full of sugar and carbohydrate snacks. There's no, there's no healthy options. Why? Because sugar and carbohydrates keep really well, right? They store for a long time in vending machines. Well, there's this country, a company called Pantry Labs that is using the same, very similar technique of providing greater availability, right? Making the intended behavior easier to do by taking basically refrigerators with iPad type devices on top of them to make uh, healthy, fresh food uh, available to people so that they can actually have a choice between these crappy vending machine options and, and healthy food. Another product that I invested in is a, is a company called Seven Cups of Tea. Seven Cups of Tea caters to uh, people who are, are suffering, who need a, 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 someone to listen to them. So instead of going to a, a therapist, which can be very expensive, very difficult, very time-consuming, uh, what people can do, so if you're a, a soldier, a veteran who's suffering from PTSD, if you're the parent of a, a, of a child with a disability, and you just need someone to talk to, and, and, and therapy is difficult to get to, you take out your, your smartphone, you open seven cups of tea, and you can immediately be connected to someone who can listen, a trained listener. Now here's the kicker. By getting people habituated to going here when they need someone to talk to, when they're feeling that emotional pain, over time, they learn to be listeners themselves. They actually get trained in the process of being a listener themselves. And it turns out that those people who become habituated to this product by learning how to be listeners themselves, they get better. Because they find now that they're important themselves. They learn these skills, these coping mechanisms, and they can offer support to others, and they themselves get better. So this is a great example of a product that uses these hooks for good. Question. Uh, actually, not a question, but just a comment uh, that uh, we should also look at how these products are uh, being seen worldwide and not just in U.S. or in Silicon Valley. So I come from India and that too from rural India. I left my village, I think, I guess in 2000 <coughs> and all my childhood friends, I was not able to like get in touch with them till like some, some of them got mobile phones. But it was still very occasional, like once in a year or two. Then I guess in 2012 was sometime around that when Facebook really made it its way into rural India that I, I started talking to them on a regular basis. And now with WhatsApp, it's almost on a daily basis. So you need to see like how many people are getting benefits out of that technology vis-a-vis -vis how many people are getting addicted to it in a negative way. Right. So I mean, the technology shaming uh, to me, like these technologies, like Facebook is usually takes the brunt when people like shame technology. And right. uh, Facebook for me uh, is a great communication tool, you know. So you need to see the bigger picture as well. Like there are seven billion people out there. So. Okay, a couple of more comments because I think we're going to end in a second. Okay. So uh, my name is Durga and uh, I'm the founder of a company called Applause. And we literally focus on healthy behavior. So uh, mm. we have an app that focuses on getting people to be healthier. Uh, as far as you know, the destructive nature of and addictive nature of technology is concerned, I think every generation has a pastime, and it happens that our pastime is Facebook and WhatsApp. My father had a pastime too. My grandfather used to write a lot of letters, and everybody, every generation has a pastime. And I, mean, I met my wife on Facebook. So <laughs> Facebook is pretty <laughs> awesome for me. Uh, but. 
Habit forming can be really difficult too, as we learned with trying to build a health product. So we have a, a product with about you know, half a million users. Most of them are women, 85% women. And they want to form a habit, but it's really, really hard, right? And they basically start using the product, and in a couple of months, they give up, because it's tedious, it's difficult. Habits are difficult to form. And we realized that Nir's book was a blessing. I'm so happy to be here today to meet him in person, because we treat his book like gospel. And you know, we literally treat his book like gospel. And getting the right trigger is really, really hard. We have been trying to craft the right trigger. It's a very hard problem. But habit forming is not necessarily bad. And I think the fact that a billion people in the world use Facebook, something must be good about it. And you know, as tons of research has shown, being addictive is a personality thing. It's about your genes, about you as a person. Some people are just prone to become, becoming addicts. You know, you can have a drink and not be addict, and somebody else gets introduced to drinking and becomes an addict. Yeah. It's, not, it's, it's not about the alcohol, it's about the person. All right, so can I just, just to that last part, there's, there's a lot of conflict. Thank you, by the way. It's, it's, I appreciate it very much about the, the kind comments you said about the, the, the book, even though that kind of making a gospel takes it to another level of responsibility that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. But, um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we don't ac actually know about, about this addiction question. It seems to be something that, uh, that affects a certain segment of the population, gets addicted to, to all sorts of things. So the, the, the test I give companies is that you know, it's okay to make products that addict people if and here's the if, if your business model doesn't depend on it. That's a, that's a very important point, right? That if your business model depends, if your business would crumble if you got rid of your addicts. Let's say we do do what I implement, what, what I suggest, implementing these use and abuse policies that say after a certain amount of time on this product, that's too much, you need to stop. If losing those people meant that your business model would crumble, and there are certain industries where that is the case, where they couldn't survive. Like, give me. Like Vegas, casinos, right? Cigarettes. Cigarettes, cigarettes are a great example. Um, some free-to-play games. Some, somebody mentioned free-to-play games. That is the case. Not all, but some free-to-play games have that model where they're dependent on these time whales, these people who spend an, you know, an exorbitant amount of time on these games. But the good news is that they know, right? For the first time, they actually have the data. So if you can do something about it, then I think you know, Facebook, if they got rid of their addicts, they'd be just fine. In fact, the product would probably be better for it. Bruno? I'm the co-founder of a company called Orchard, and you know we kind of take a different approach in how we build products. We kind of look at it as a utility. So we create an app that can automatically diagnose and price a smart device and help you sell it. So it's all about empowering the user. So we kind of take a different stance from making a product that's super addictive. But when I think about addictive products in general and just coming from a perspective of a, an entrepreneur, I think it really comes, I think when you have to step even further back and really think about how we define a successful product and company, right? And I think once you can affect the way we define success, we can really ultimately shape how people create products. And so a very good example is when you meet with investors, they usually look for you know, two very big metrics, growth and user engagement. So the stickier your product is, the more they're willing to put in money, the higher your valuation goes, and so forth. You, know, you get more rewarded. And so everyone is incentivized to build products that trigger those rewards. And so when you look at, and it's only when you uh, redefined what those rewards will, uh, how we give rewards to startups, uh, that will kind of e help uh, designers like myself evolve their products. So a really good example of this is, you know, uh, body image dysmorphia and uh, uh, eating uh, eating disorders. If you want to stop that, you have to redefine beauty. 
And it's only when the magazines, the media, and everyone collectively redefines what is beautiful uh, as, as a human being physically will we you know, enable change in how we you know, uh, develop products or how we, uh, the process that we take to you know, feel beautiful. Do you want me to respond? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what the the. I mean, my gut reaction is actually to say that uh, doesn't really have to do with habit forming products, but it turns out that the evidence shows that um, we find cases of anorexia and bulimia even in cultures that uh, are not exposed to media and that actually value uh, full-bodied people. Uh, so it actually turns out that a lot of these conditions are not. We're not as easily manipulatable as we might believe. That, that, that really, you know, the tactics, even the tactics that I, that I say in this book, um, this, isn't, this isn't about coercion. There's a big difference between coercion. Coercion is about getting people to do things they don't want to do. And there's nothing in here in this book that will help you get people to do things they don't want to do. What this book will help you do, and what my work is all about, is about persuasion. It's about helping people do things that they want to do, but for lack of the product being too difficult, the behavior being too hard to do, that these technologies, these products help us accomplish the things we already want to do. Catalina, I think this will be the, does anyone else have a, yeah, one more question after Hi. that, a couple more questions. It's a great conversation. My name is Catalina Rizhila. I'm a founder of a, a nonprofit called GradGuru, and our mission is to improve completion rates among community college students. Um, we're half a million, actually about half of all Americans start their higher education career at a community college, about between 10 and 30 percent finish, so within six years, which is not good. So we're trying to fix what I think is mostly a bandwidth challenge. So these students oftentimes are working full-time jobs, have families, speak more than one language, are navigating very complex bureaucracies. And so what GradGuru is trying to do is push out reminders and deadlines and rewards and trying to get them through that loop. But my question to you, and just generally, is is when you're competing with kind of the off, you know, these are folks who are complexly competing with, they don't have a lot of time to be on Facebook um, or on Instagram or on, or on Pinterest. Um, so how do, you, how do you do that? You know, how do you make that an online or a, a mobile experience that much more valuable than, I guess, being in the real world, right. right? That's a terrific question. Actually, I just published an article today in Inc. around um, companies that are uh, designing their products with this understanding of how persuasive and enticing all the other things in the world are, right? So I profiled a company called Minerva, which is an accredited university, you're familiar with it, uh, that I, I visited their headquarters and I got a tour of the product and they, they do some really interesting things. You know, one of the problems that plagues online education is this completion rate problem, right? Students just don't finish the courses, it's single digits, it's really abysmal. And part of that is that, you know, online, Facebook is just a click away, right? So if I'm watching some boring professor inside a letterbox on a single view uh, a video shot, and that just me, you know, some professor droning on and on and on, that's super boring. And what's much more entertaining is, is seeing what's happening on Facebook or Twitter or some other site. So Minerva, knowing this fact, designed the online educational experience without making the same basic mistake that everybody does when we change platforms. Everybody thinks, well, let's take the newspaper and put the newspaper online. It looks exactly the same and we'll put it online. Well, that doesn't really work, right? We've got to optimize the content for the medium. And so what Minerva does is optimize the content for the medium and say, no lectures. 100%, a university with 100% zero lectures. Instead, they run their online classrooms 
designed to be hyper engaging. One, uh, the, there like was a future cast. Well, they, they yes, exactly. <laughs> they <des> I <laughs> wish. No lectures. They designed um, one uh, uh, journalist for the Atlantic called Minerva uh, fascist in a good way. <laughs> that it's so engaging. It's run like this, uh, like this um, game show almost, where the teacher uses the Socratic method to pick on this student in, who's in one country and this student who's on one country. So everybody's on guard. Everybody's ready and knows that they have to participate because they might get called on on this virtual platform. So designing for this understanding, knowing that people are easily distractible, needs to be part of the design aesthetic. Fascist in a good way. That's a good title for this, uh, for this session. I'm Naveen, I'm a designer here at the Foundry. Um, I've been working on something um, not at the Foundry <laughs> that is uh, about uh, forming a new habit um, and the habit is empathy. So how to respond more empathetically in, in different situations where your reptilian brain would normally drive you to otherize someone who is different from you. Um, and one of the big challenges with that, you know, a lot of the neuromarketing that does this uh, habit forming effectively relies on the reptilian brain's um, reaction. So I wanted to get maybe some advice from you on how you would think, because to have empathy, you know, you have to switch from the reptilian brain to the frontal cortex, right. which your brain never wants to do because it takes more right. effort. Right, so the, the, the first step of the hook is the trigger phase. And uh, technology is, is, is enabling uh, triggering in new ways. And we can trigger people in ways that we couldn't before. So what I would recommend to you is to first figure out what is the action? What's the behavior? Make it very specific. It's not be more empathetic, but it's do something in particular. Open the app or check a website. Say a particular thing. Do a particular action. Make that very, very concrete what you want that, that habit to actually be. I see. So what your challenge is going to be, how do I trigger someone uh, when they're in the midst of their other habits? How do I interrupt those current behaviors and habits when there is this situation that presents itself? Right. So I'll, I'll give you an example of something that I found triggers me in a beautiful way, which is this, this watch, the Apple Watch. So it's set for, if I sit for 50 minutes, and it just buzzed me, that's why I came to mind. If I sit for 50 minutes, and I'm in my flow, and I'm in conversation, and I'm, I'm not thinking anywhere uh, about how I need to stand up and move my body and not sit for so long, it triggers me. Right? It knows that I've been sitting for so long that I need to be triggered, and now the action is to stand up and move my body and, and not sit for so long. So that's going to be your challenge. How can you trigger someone at the appropriate time and place to take that key action, that key behavior? That's going to be your challenge. Ruth is looking at her watch, and uh, so we have to wrap up. Final, final question. Very briefly, Okay, please. it's me. Uh, quick, uh, quick question. I'm thinking about, uh, uh, about addiction and habits some more. And I kind of realized that before some, something becomes a habit, it's an addiction. I think so many things, like I, I thought back when VHS came across, I'm old, so VHS came along. And we all did like crazy, recorded everything. So everything was on TV, we recorded. We spent a ton of time just recording stuff. Then after a while, it became a nice habit. It became kind of nice. So isn't addiction and habit kind of related? And it, everything starts with an addiction before it becomes a habit? 
Uh, I think it's actually the opposite. I think uh, that many habits can turn, or some habits can turn into addictions for some people. Uh, but again, it has to meet that definition of a behavior that I want to stop, and yet for some reason I can't stop. Right. So if you're recording and you wish you could stop, but you can't, then then I would call it an addiction. Yeah, I, I just thought also even Facebook, everything. I think we always go crazy first. We go extremely crazy, and I would say it's an addiction. And then we force us to kind of fall back, and it, it right. becomes a habit. I so it does something about I, I it. I think um, I mean, this conversation has been really interesting in terms of clearly in your mind, it's clear what the distinction is between addiction and habit is. But a lot of people, I think, are still struggling with that, maybe understandably, maybe not. But I think what I have learned most from this is the value, potentially, of habit in terms of developing good habits. What have you learned from this conversation? As a, what, what, what has anyone said that you hadn't thought about before as a final comment? Hmm. I, you know, I think that there's, um, there's a general feeling that, that we're being manipulated. And I talk about in the book uh, how the, the monster of our generation, you know, every generation has its monster, Dracula, Frankenstein. The, the monster of our generation is the zombie. Right? If you think about it, zombies didn't used to be so popular. All of a sudden, over the past 10 years, there's this zombie. Zombies are becoming very, very popular. And I can tell by this conversation that the fear is that we, we really are, are scared of being controlled. And there's a, a name for this. It's called reactance, this psychological phenomenon that we feel like our autonomy is threatened, we rebel. And so I think that that fear is actually very healthy. I think we should be cautious. We should be able to say, look, I'm using email too much. What do I do about it? Uh, we're using it in the wrong time and place. I'm using these technologies in ways that aren't fulfilling, that don't enhance my life. How can I put technology in its place? I think that's extremely healthy. And I, I look forward to more of these conversations, more people who kind of say, look, these technologies are great, but you know what? They have these bad side effects. How do we make sure we can control our technologies as opposed to our technologies controlling us? Well, I'm pleased that I can feel good now about being a zombie, right? <laughs> now, I want to thank you.